What up, City of Champions? Super thrilled about my guest this week because I've been trying to lock him down for about two months, and finally, our schedules just happen to sync up. He is professional boxer Adam Braidwood. Now, most of you might recall Adam from his fight in Edmonton this past June that sadly ended Tim Hegg's life. What you guys may not know is that Adam's a former Edmonton Eskimo first overall pick and that he does tremendous work with at-risk youth. He also spent two years in jail for various drug and violence charges. He kicked a severe opioid addiction cold turkey and won the WBU heavyweight title while still living in a halfway house. Adam's a man who's gone through hell and back on more than several occasions and he's lived to tell the tale. His story is one of excruciating lows, um, but I think even greater redemption for it. Adam was incredibly gracious to have taken an hour out of his hectic pre-fight schedule this week to talk with me. Um, his rawness, his vulnerability in, in everything that he talks about is just absolutely palpable. And I think the podcast title really fits him perfectly. A champion can be defined in many ways. A champion can be someone who overcomes tremendous mental or physical deficit to live a normal life. A champion can also be someone who rises above the average of the masses to accomplish something remarkable. And no matter the case, the common thread is that the greater the adversity one faces, the harder the struggle, the larger their legend grows. Adam Braidwood embodies a true champion, and I hope you enjoy his story. So sitting here today with Adam Braidwood, um, professional boxer, ex-football player, amongst a number of other things. Ex-con. Ex-con. Okay, let's jump right into it. How, how you doing today? How's training going? Uh, you know what? It's good. It's basically just kind of tidying things up. I had a really good training camp. Uh, I'm working full-time with uh, Richard Lestage, who's probably one of the best-kept secrets in Canada boxing. Uh, he just blew it. He blew his secret. I blew his secret. <laughs> I don't think he minds. He's hiding all the way up <laughs> in the middle of Vancouver Island. I don't think too many people can find him, but uh, I'm really lucky to be able to work with him. He's worked with Canadian champions, world champions. And the thing is with Rich is he's taken guys from a very young age and developed them and gave them the skills that they needed. And these are guys, local guys. He didn't go to Vegas and get the cream of the crop. Get to work with I just worked with local kids in tiny little Parksville, uh, Vancouver Island, and you know developed some champions, and we have a really good relationship. I'm really lucky to work with them and had a great training camp. Yeah, so you're in the heavyweight division. So what are you going to fight at? Uh, I'll fight. I'll probably be about 250. Um, I've been as low as 240. It honestly just depends. Like I'm so used to like carrying more weight. Mm -hmm. What do you walk around at normally? About 250. 250. Like, okay, even, so you don't have to cut a great deal. No, I don't have to cut at all. It's it's more or less like it just kind of happens naturally. Like some days I'm weighing some 242 pounds. Some days I'm 250. Like it just really just depends on where my energy levels at, how my body rebounds. Yeah. Um, you know, like this training camp, I was pretty much 240 the whole training camp, and then I, I have a feeling like weigh-ins are going to come and I'm going to be 250 pounds. Yeah. And for those of you who are listening, um, sitting with Adam, he's 6'4". And, oh, yeah, 6'4", 6 6 And 250, like just a mountain of a man. Uh, I can only imagine what your opponents must think in the ring. But let's rewind a bit. Let's go back to the origin story. So you grew up in the Lower Mainland in BC, right? Yep. And, uh, and you started playing football at a pretty young age. 
Yeah, I think I was seven. Seven. And so how did that career go from, from the time you started playing junior or whatever they call it into uh, college? Yeah, community football. It, it's one of those things that, you know, my parents knew I had to do something. I was like a little terror. And so, you know, I was trying to wrestle, I was trying to box, I was trying to do all these things. And one of my neighbors played football and said, well, why don't you play football? So I ended up signing up and I think the first play, the first game I ever played in, I ended up carrying the kid off in a stretcher. And I was like, all right, I'm good at this. We're gonna stick with this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just one of those things that developed over time. I was just doing it. I kind of became obsessed with it. And then um, around grade 10, I hit a growth spurt. I was never bigger than everyone. I hit a growth spurt in grade 10. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden people started looking at me like, hey, this kid has potential. You know, I think I was about, when I was 15, I was about 6'1", 185 pounds, you know, in good shape. And uh, people started to take notice. I remember I actually went to a, a combine. Um, there was this thing called the Ron Diaz combine. This was like computers were just getting started. Mm -hmm. You know, to make a highlight tape, you had to go get a VHS and you had to find somebody local to do all this <laughs> stuff. Like, and, uh, you know, you couldn't email people. You couldn't, like, look stuff up on the internet very easily. Like, right. it was difficult. And, you know, I'm still basically, you know, I, I can work Instagram, but I can't really work a computer too well. <laughs> but uh, uh, one of the things that you had to do, you had to write handwritten letters. And so I was actually reading the paper and I saw this advertisement that said the Ron Diaz football combine. UCLA will be there. Oregon will be there. All these different, I was like, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to that. I told my mom, I was like, mom, I need 20 bucks <laughs> and I need bus fare. And yeah. she was like, for what? And I was like, well, I'm gonna go try out for these football guys. And you know, my parents were really supportive and they were like, sure. And so they ended up driving me there. And it was at Burnaby A ranks. And I went through and they were looking at a couple of local guys. Bart Swazinski was one of them. Uh, they were a little bit older. They were in grade 12, grade 11. Mm -hmm. And they were big fellas. And uh, I went in there and ended up, uh, uh, doing pretty good, you know, like we we're doing one-on-ones, we we're doing running drills. I was pretty fast and I, I caught the attention of some of them. And then there was a trainer there named Robert Holland who runs uh, the program sports conditioning. He's actually down in California now. And uh, I kind of caught their eye and they went for lunch after and then they came out and talked to us and they're like, yeah, you know, uh, maybe go to junior college or something and, uh, you know, develop. We want to see you get a little bit bigger for your position, a little bit faster. I was like, junior college? I was like, I'm going into grade 10. <laughs> and they're like, what? They thought you were going to They're like, 12? what's your name? Yeah. yeah. They're like, what's your name? Like, we're going to keep an eye on you. And so anyways, I ended up training with Robert who played in the NFL for a little bit and uh, CFL, he actually played here in Edmonton. And uh, he just kind of mentored me and was like, look, this is what you got to do. You got to write letters. So I'd, I'd write, you know, a hundred handwritten letters to all the Division One universities. I'd send them all out. I made uh, a list of team of 10 dream schools I wanted, 10 real schools that I thought I could maybe get, and then 10 backups. And I wrote them all letters, made them highlight tapes, sent it to them. Then I went down to... Um, the, the Oregon Nike Combine. And this was before, it was invitation only back then. Mm -hmm. Like now I think you just pay a fee and you can go try out and they have tons of them. But there's only two back then. There was one in Oregon, I think one in Texas and maybe New York. And I ended up going down there and uh, I was fortunate enough that I had played men's league flag football. And so that's full contact on the line. So I'm playing with CFL guys, uh, ex-college guys, like, you know, older guys, but I'm still, I'm 15. And so I had to learn how to pass rush with no pads on. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what we did down there, right. right? And these guys were used to pads, so they're trying to hit me, and I'm up, up, I'm moving. So I ended up being uh, ranked number five on the west coast of Canada, uh, or on the west coast of the United States and Canada by right. PacWest Football. So I got a bunch of scholarship offers and ended up going to Washington State. 
Uh, they showed the most interest. They were like calling my neighbor's house and shit. Oh, no way. Yeah, because they weren't allowed to contact me. I was too young, so they called my neighbor. And wow. my neighbor would walk over and be like, yeah, this university wants you to call them. I was allowed to call them. Right. So it was this big runaround. Uh, this is what, like 2000, kind of? Uh, yeah, it was about 2000. Yeah. 2000. So yeah, before kind of the internet was a big thing and yeah. and people had to be creative. That's amazing that at grade 10, you asked your parents for 20 bucks to go do this yeah. and bus fare versus kids who 20 bucks like to go spend at the arcade or go see a movie. Like you're pretty driven. Well, yeah, I just, I kind of saw the world a little bit differently, I guess, just with sports and, uh, you know, like I grew up in a mixed race neighborhood, you know, Surrey, Delta, yeah. a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures. So I was exposed to a lot of different things. And I was like, well, this world's like a big place. I'd like to go see some of it. I seem to be good at sports. Like maybe that's an avenue I could do. I want to make something of myself, right? I don't yeah. want to be stuck here and, and, and doing a job, which there's nothing wrong with. It's just, you know, like I was driven outside of that, whatever it was, that I was gonna do, I wanted to do it very well and see how far it could take me, right? Right. And so I knew, you know, going to university, like all these things, they open up doors for you, right? So I was like, all I wanted to do is get on TV, be a scholarship football player. <laughs> that was like my goal. I was like, I can get on TV, right. I'm gonna play college football, that shit is big time. And you know what, my first year I ended up playing in the Rose Bowl. So I was yeah. like, all right, I did it. <laughs> yeah, you had a pretty successful college career, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it was good. You know, I ended up being all Pac-10 freshman. Uh, ended up playing in the Rose Bowl, ended up playing in the Holiday Bowl, uh, ended up winning a Pac-10 championship, you know, it was, it was a good experience for sure. Mm -hmm. And then uh, 2006 rolls around and you got drafted? Yeah, I was pissed. I wanted to play in the NFL. <laughs> can you get drafted to both? You can, but, you but just, I didn't. Did you get drafted to the NFL? No, no there was... Uh, How did you look at that? Did you see that the CFL as a stepping stone to the NFL? That's what I was hoping for. I didn't really understand, like, you know, I'd been in the States for, for four years and when you're 17 and you leave, like four years of lifetime, right? Like that's all I knew was the NFL, America. Yeah. I always grew up watching the CFL and I ended up loving the CFL. I was actually happier playing in the CFL than I was in college. Right. Ended up being a great experience. I ended up loving Edmonton, I ended up buying a house out here. And, um, you know, I thought it was probably the best, I, it was the most fun playing football I ever had. Even though we were losing, mm -hmm. it was still like a lot of fun. It ended up getting bad later, but. What did uh, you think about Edmonton when you first heard that? Had you been here before? Uh, no, but my mom grew up out here. Okay, so you're like, that's kind of a cool throwback to mom going yeah, to her home. Yeah, and I had family out here, and uh, I didn't really know too much about it. And Pullman, Washington is, is similar temperatures, so it's like a similar type. Of, it's it's Eastern Washington, right? It, it's it's more like Edmonton. So I got here, and I was like, okay, this is home. Like, yeah. everybody's cool, right? Yeah. So. That's awesome. Um, and then you scored your first uh, touchdown. 2006, September 8th, I think, on a yeah. fumble by Henry Burris. Yeah, yeah, I stripped uh, Henry, picked it up, ran it in for a touchdown. That kind of that game kind of made me because I ended up playing by accident. I was fifth string yeah. coming into the season, and uh, you know, uh, I, I was I was in over my head, so they thought, but I was paying attention to what everybody was doing. You know, like when when all these guys were practicing, I was watching the good guys. There was Joe Mumford, who's CFL legend. You know, we had some really good players, and uh, in the BC game, uh, there ended up being an injury, and then a player got kicked out. Uh, Joe got kicked out, actually, those two dirty players, Jimenez and Murphy, I still <laughs> wouldn't mind taking a couple of rounds out of those guys. <laughs> but uh, uh, they ended up uh, getting kicked out of the game, and I had been paying attention. I was ready to play. Right. I was like, you know, I just needed an opportunity. So I ended up doing uh, fairly well, and it kind of made my career, those, uh, especially the BC game, and then uh, I think I got a sack and then a uh, forced fumble on uh, Dickinson 
and uh, that kind of made my career. Where was the disconnect between such a successful college career and then coming in as fifth string in the CFL? I was pissed. No, but like, what, what was the problem? Like, did were you just undervalued, underrated, or or had you not done enough in college to really establish yourself? You, I, I think any professional sport, there's a huge gap between college and pro. Mm-hmm. Like, I think some guys get helped along, or maybe they're just very, very gifted athletes to the point that they can come in and play. But there's a big difference between a 28 or 29 year old man and you know a 21 year old kid. You know, somebody who's played in the CFL for any more than five years knows the difference, right? And so, you know, it's just kind of a grit, technique, experience, a drive. A lot of these guys are feeding their families. Like, it's a, it's a different mentality. College is like, it's a brotherhood. It's a fun experience, but you're a kid, though. Right. Like, you're a total kid. Yeah. Like, I don't think you turn into a man until you're over 25, right. really. Blue Mountain State kind of having fun. and Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, it, it's serious. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I tell people all the time, it's like, college, like, I... Some of the guys I played with ended up joining the military, right? It's a natural progression. One of my buddies became, became an actual Navy SEAL. Mm-hmm. And he was like, man, he goes, minus the sleep deprivation, training camp in college was the hardest shit that I've ever <laughs> done. And he goes, it's the worst. Like, you get up yeah. at six, you don't get home till midnight. You got three practices a day, yeah. plus training, film, like, like they get the most mileage out of you that they can, right? But when you love that sport, like it doesn't feel like work, right? You probably you seem like the guy who kind of embellished that. I would have been, I was pissed. Like I never missed a day of practice or a workout in four years because I loved it. Like that's what I wanted to do, so. So then talk about the injury in 2008? Yeah, 2008 uh, or yeah, 2007, I think it was right at the end of the season. Okay. Second to last game of the season, I was covering for a guy uh, who got injured on kickoff. And I was just running down the field. And I ended up doing kind of good at kickoff, which is unnormal, uh, which is not very normal. It's 275 pounds, I think. And I was running down there. And uh, I just got hit funny. I'd never been injured in my life. Never missed a game. Never missed a practice, anything. And I just kind of hit a funny spot on the field and tore my ACL. And then uh, I came back. And uh, I was like, oh, whatever, it's an injury, who cares? It's nothing, right? Everyone's like, no, it's serious. I'm like, it's nothing, right? And so I kind of just ignored it. I didn't take it very serious. So anyways, I ended up getting the surgery. Um, ended up not really doing what I should have. Like I was kind of just ignoring it and doing what I normally do. Right, not doing like the proper rehab procedure. Well, I was doing the proper rehab, but I was probably doing too much. Okay. And I just wasn't really like paying attention to like what was happening with the knee. Like I didn't care if it swelled up. I was like, I'm still going to run. And so I ended up getting fitted for a knee brace that was uh, missing a component. Yeah. Like the most important component that keeps it from locking. So I'm going out to practice and it's only been five and a half months. And it's usually six months before you really start to practice. Well, I ended up doing a one-on-one with uh, uh, with one of the offense alignment who's now actually a police officer out here. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, uh, I ended up tearing it again. Yeah. Well, there was uh, some miscommunication. I don't want to get into all of it because, you know, it was kind of a shady situation, but I'm not going to put anybody on the spot. Right. Uh, they ended up telling me my knee was okay, and they thought it was. So they ended up doing another surgery and cleaning it out. And it was just kind of a misdiagnosis. Like something was missed, right? Like there was a tear. My ACL was torn. And, um, and it was just kind of missed. And so uh, I ended up practicing the last half of the season. I rehabbed it myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, just was running on the sideline, but I had no ACL. I had a torn MCL, I had a bone bruise, and a torn meniscus. And you're just gutting it out this whole time. Yeah, well, I was taking a lot of painkillers right. and, uh, and gutting it out, I guess. And so throughout the season, I ended up getting to the point where I was almost ready to play. Mm-hmm. 
the team was doing horrible and I was on the eight game suspended less or uh, injury and so like my salary wasn't going towards the salary cap so they kept me on uh, on the injured list but I was almost ready to play by by week seven or by week nine I think I was almost ready to play and anyways it ended up not happening and so I had two fights in the off season because I was pissed off I was like man my football career is over my knee will never be the same it didn't feel right like I couldn't even do a single leg leg press with any weight without my legs shaking and giving out like I knew something was wrong so I flew out to see a doctor back east on my own dime, it cost me about four grand because I was going to get these injections into my knee. And that was back in the day before stem cells was really a thing. Mm-hmm. But this doctor had the stem cells. I think he was smuggling them into the country somehow. And like, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes right. to be able to play again. At that point, it was f- fairly experimental and not well-researched. Now it's kind of more commonplace. Yeah. Know, well, yeah, exactly. And so I ended up doing two fights that offseason. The first one, uh, boxing fight. I couldn't fight any MMA before. I did MMA the year before because yeah. my knee wasn't the same. Well, I did one fight with no ACL, meniscus. That was your first fight? Yeah, my first boxing one. fight. Yeah. Yeah. I knocked I knocked that guy out. And then the second fight, just things like in that training camp did not go according to plan. Now, I'm not going to take anything away from Lee because he beat me up. Like, yeah. that's just the way it is. But um, my knee gave out. I wasn't feeling right. I had a bad training camp. I wasn't focused. I was going through some personal stuff. I was fighting the addiction. Yeah. I got sick a bunch. Like, I wasn't myself. So I got beat up. So there goes my boxing career. Mm-hmm. So then I fly out to see this doctor and he feels my knee. He goes, your knee's torn, man. There's nothing I can do for injection. Like, what do you mean my knee's torn? He looks at the old MRI. He goes, it says right here, it's torn. Because we'll get another MRI tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's torn. You need to get it repaired again. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, great. Yeah. Right? Like, cool. Like, there goes my boxing career. What else? Yeah. There goes Pile my on me, career. Right? Yeah. I just bought a new house. Yeah. Uh, there was more to it, too. I was actually engaged. That fell through. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so like now my health is gone, my personal life is crap, my finances are crap, my career's gone, and I'm like, oh, cool, here we go. And so I come to the stadium, and the training camp's about to start, and I slap down two MRIs, and I'm like, well, I'm not playing this year. Yeah. I need to get surgery, and they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, here it is right here. Here's two MRIs, one from last year, one from right here. You know, uh, it's it's one of those things that, uh, you know, it was just, it was, it was something that was missed. It's a medical profession. It's not, it's yeah. not exact science. Like mm-hmm. you can't, I had so much scar tissue in my knee. They couldn't see everything properly. Right. Mm-hmm. There was just something that was missed. And then, you know, when they cleaned it out, if they had MRI'd it again, after they'd gone into the surgery and cleaned it out, they would have seen that it was torn. Right. Yeah. And it was still part of it there, but just over the period of the year of working out, the rest of it just tore. So it looked like there was still an ACL there, but there wasn't. Yeah. And so, so anyway, so they're like, okay, well, you know, we'll get you the surgery, Yeah. just stay home. So there I am in a city where I don't really know that many people, just bought a house, I get surgery and I'm sitting in my house by myself. For yeah, and of course, what do they give you after the surgery? Painkillers, Pain and, and you know what, I'll say this, like everybody blames the doctors, like I manipulated them all, I was like taking way more than I should have because I was dealing with like my personal issues. And uh, you know, I manipulated a lot of doctors into giving me pain medicine because then I'd go in and I'd hear that Valium was really fun and so I'd be like hey I can't sleep and I'd look up all the symptoms yeah at that point it was easy WebMD how do I get this you know yeah and so you know it was just one of those things like where one thing carried uh, into the other and then I started selling them to support my habit Mm -hmm. and then I started doing more drugs and it was just like you know I wasn't myself during that time and then you know I actually left after that season and stopped everything cold turkey I caught pneumonia 
went through withdrawals in this little crummy basement suite I was living in, sleeping on the floor for two weeks. I was just laid up, yeah. sweating it out, no TV, no nothing, and like was basically like, "Hey, I gotta go back to Vancouver and try to make something of myself." Yeah, I rehabbed it. I actually hired a trainer out there. Um, this guy Derek Hans, a really good guy, very intelligent guy. He actually got my knee better. I put on thirty pounds mm-hmm. of muscle, got back in shape, and ended up playing in the 2010 season. Right. But I was fighting painkillers. I had started to sell drugs. Right, so the addiction stuff has still kept up with you a little bit. Yeah. Even I, though you had kicked it? Or even though you kind I of... I kicked it, but I got back into detox? it. Detox? Yeah. yeah. And and had you had you sought out any help at that point? Or, mm-hmm. or was it just you felt like you could you power through it yourself? I was in total denial. Yeah. Was like, it's really what it comes to. I was lying to everybody. Like, people would be like, you're all right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Like, you know, but nobody really knew. Like, it wasn't really as big of an issue as it is now. Mm-hmm. Right, and then I'd never done drugs or even really drank in my life, so nobody ever thought anything was wrong. Right, that's what I wanted to ask you. Like, there was no issue with alcohol or drugs when you were younger, right? No, I could you were su- purely like football focused. Yeah, like I'd have a couple of drinks here and there, get drunk with the guys, and yeah, whatever. But I, and even now to this day, I can have two or three drinks. Well, yeah. I can't really. I'm on parole, but uh, <laughs> I can have two or three drinks and put it down, like, right. and then not do it again for a year. Like, it doesn't really bug me. Um, well, the scale of addiction is is so wide ranging and so varied, right? People think you're either an addict or you're not, not yeah. realizing that there's there's everyone on on all parts of the spectrum, right? Like you can be the guy that can't even have a sip, and if you have a sip, you're gone, you're yeah. overboard, right? But then there's people who can have four or five, and then that sixth one is where they go over the limit, right? And you know, some people feel like at the end of a hard day they need a drink, right? Yeah. Some people have never thought that, but yet still go binge drink on the weekend, right? Yeah. Just because it's fun. So I mean, like, and you talk to any former addict or former person who's struggled with that, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you're the same. Like, you've done a lot of self reflection, right? Yeah. Some really like intentional thinking into why, what caused that with me, and so what did you kind of trace that to? Uh, well, it kind of came down to the fact that. Um, you know, I offended for the third time. I discharged a firearm in my house and I got court ordered to send to rehab. Mm-hmm. And so then I started to like listen to people's stories. I had a really good connection with one of the counselors there um, professionally. And she got me talking about some things in my life that had skewed my way of thinking, right? And um, I think when you're a high level athlete, I believe this is true for a lot of them. You're so focused on your sport and you have people around you that are kind of like navigating you to like maybe take other parts of your life and sacrifice them for the sport. So you miss a lot. Like I've never been in a really good, healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been very disconnected from my family for a lot of years. Like it's starting to rebuild now. All my really close friends, I'm not in regular day-to-day contact with. I've made amazing friends throughout the time we stay in touch, but you become very disconnected and isolated. You don't process things the same way other people do. Like I, like my problem solving was so far away from everything. You know, like realistically, like when you break it down, I've made a living kicking the shit out of people for my whole life. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's my problem solving, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. so it comes down to that. Like, right. that's where I value myself. Like, someone goes, go take this guy out. Yeah. Sure, so that translated into all aspects of my life and you throw drugs into the mix and uh, you, your line of thinking, your problem solving skills become very, you know, very skewed. Like, for me, painkillers, it wasn't about, like, me loving doing drugs. It was about me having an issue mm-hmm. and this was 
the the problem solver. I'm in pain. I'm gonna take this painkiller. I can go play football without thinking of any of the consequences. Right. Right. Normal people are like, "Fuck! I can't take that. I gotta operate a tractor mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Like whatever it is they're doing." So my problem solving skills were very skewed. It was do whatever you have to do to go play. And even today, even now, it doesn't matter what happens this week. I have to go fight. Yeah. You know, if I break my whatever, my break my rib in a car accident, I'm gonna get a cortisone shot right. <laughs> so I can go fight because right. that's otherwise I don't eat. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's just one of those things like your problem solving is very skewed. You don't have like these cushions, like I don't get to go on EI. I don't get to like have my boss pay for my treatment. It's like, no, I went to prison. I got a court order and I got to pay for it myself. And I got to give 32 grand to my lawyer. Yeah. You know, so it's like, it's, it's a rough way to live your life and it kind of messes up your problem solving in regular society sense. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, you know. Well, you can go. You can go either way. I think, right? Like, you can just go totally down the wrong path and mm-hmm. and hit rock bottom, or you can look at it like the way you're looking at it now. It's like, no, there's no other way. Like, we're going through this, and, yeah. and we're go- we've got to we've got to overcome everything that that's ahead of us because life doesn't get easier at any point, right? We just get stronger yeah. every day. Um, I think two things too that are that are vital. Probably you felt like there was no one there that you could talk to or share. No. Plus, you didn't even know that you had this issue, right? No. Like, no one's easier to lie to than yourself, and especially if you don't have close people challenging you on mm-hmm. stuff, and and it makes it worse. I think even for athletes, because especially top performers, they're gonna prop like the people around you're gonna prop you up so you perform, so you perform, so so you know, let's just get through this season or this game even, and yeah. and uh, and then we'll worry about you know everything else that's wrong in your life later but it's all about you know how good was your last game well yeah and, that, and that's just it and you, the value of yourself becomes very skewed right like it's the highs are super high the lows are super low mm-hmm. and like how do you reciprocate that in life like for me I was like I just want to die playing football because I don't know what to do after the age of 30 that's going to reciprocate this kind of excitement mm-hmm. right and now people are like oh are you going to get that with boxing I was like no because <laughs> I already know what it's like to fall. I'm just going to move on to the next thing after my boxing career is done. Right. And so, you know, it's just, it's a natural progression of life. I think it's just, you know, like it's not an up and down. It's a sideways left to right up and down. Right. right. And so that's kind of what I went through. And so hopefully I'm better because of all of it. And, you know, just a lot of people got hurt along the way as well. You haven't lost a boxing fight in a long time. No, not since uh, that one in 2008. Um, so what... Do you know how you're going to deal with the loss if, if you have one? Have you thought about that? Or are you just like, no, I'm just winning every one straight um, Well, I look at it this way. Um, I'm not competitive with other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hear a lot of like high-level athletes. Like, I'm so competitive, I have to win at everything. And I'm like, that's not really relevant to me because I don't really care if I beat you at cards or in a video game. Like, I'm competitive with myself. Yeah. So if somebody beats me because they're better than me, fine. I'm going to try to fight you again because <laughs> I'm going to fix whatever mistake that I made because I honestly believe like once I have the skills, I shouldn't lose to anybody if I prepare properly, mm-hmm. right? So if there's something that I did wrong, then I'll just go back and try to correct that. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I'm just not qualified to be in the game anymore, then I'll retire. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just the reality. Like I don't have any delusions that... I'm going to make millions and retire off this and I'm going to be this guy or that guy. Like I understand the road is very difficult. I just believe if I listen to the people around me that none of these people should beat me. Mm -hmm. The whole reason why I box is because people can beat me. Mm -hmm. And that's the game I like to play. Right. Right. Like if we're, 
living in the 1800s and I got to be the best gunslinger. I'm going to go do that because mm-hmm. I can lose. Yeah. That's the whole risk. That's what I like. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's how I deal with it. So what are you going to do after boxing? Any thought to that? Mm-hmm. I don't uh, think in terms of like lifetime. Mm-hmm. I just don't because things change. I have kind of a 10 year plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe in different revenue streams. I, I believe that boxing can like football should have transitioned me into the real world. Right. Um, you know, I train people, I hold boot camps, I do self-defense classes. I find it rewarding. I just coached at a charity boxing event. I worked with a lot of people who uh, were fighting for the first time and they had all, and I was kind of against it because I understand the risks in boxing. And then I heard the reasons for wanting to do it. And it was about building confidence and it was about helping people. And, uh, you know, so I participated in it, right? Mm-hmm. I do some public speaking and, you know, to say that I have like a plan for exactly what I'm going to do after and I'm boxing, I have about five plans. Right. And I plan on doing all of them. There's no reason why you can't, right? How important was giving back and helping other people? When did you first discover kind of how good that makes you feel? Um, pretty much after the first class, like people, because here's the thing, there's a huge gap in knowledge in everything, right? Like if someone comes in and says that uh like for for you and for your industry right like someone's like oh i'm an expert at podcasts mm-hmm. i know media i'm this i'm that and they don't know shit mm-hmm. but you believe them for six eight months and waste your time like that's a huge letdown right right so like i don't know everything about boxing i don't know anything even close right like i've you know the the ko boxing crew has been training champions before i was even born mm-hmm. But I do know enough to teach someone who knows nothing right. the right way to do it, mm-hmm. right? So as soon as they were like, oh, like I, my coach was this and that, and he told me to do this, and like as soon as I could explain to them why that was not necessarily the best way of doing things, and they subscribed to my way of doing things, I was like, okay, like I haven't been wasting my time. Because like my whole goal, I always tell my coach the same thing, I go, look, I don't care about the belts and the money and all this stuff. Like, yeah, it's important because, like, you know, it's comfort. Right. That's it. It's comfort, right? Having money is comfort. Mm -hmm. My thing is to be real. That's it. Like, I don't walk around. I didn't get tattoos to try to look tough. I don't walk around and dress a certain way to try to, like, scare people. Like, I try to be as friendly as possible Mm -hmm. because I'm real. Like, I already know what I'm capable of. I've gone the distance. I, I know the distance that I'm willing to go in life. And most people don't. They think they do. They've, re- they've rehearsed these scenarios in their head and that makes you like sick. It's like a virus. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you're delusional. Like, well, I can do that. I can do this. I'm this. I'm that. Well, you've never done it. And then when things don't go your way, it breaks you down even further, right? Well, yeah. They just make excuses. Yeah. Right? Well, then what you just said reminds me of a quote when, you know, when you're good at things, you tell people, but when you're great, they tell you, right? Yeah. You don't need to go boasting about it. No, so, that's just it. I run into a million guys. They're like, oh yeah, I boxed. I'm like, yeah, where? <laughs> well, you know, I was like, sparred. Mm-hmm. Where? Well, I've been in a lot of street fights. Well, yeah. okay. Again, you know, like, what are you talking about? Like, why are we talking? I don't, I'm not going to talk to you yeah. because you're a good boxer. I'm going to talk to you because you're like a nice person. Right. Um, so I want to get back to the story to finish out to where we are today, just because I th- think it's so important that people understanding you a bit better and hopefully understanding themselves. So um, you ended up, what year going to prison? Yeah. What year did you go? Uh, well, I got arrested in 2010 during the Great Cup here in Edmonton. Um, uh, I was in and out of jail for the next three years, and I got sentenced in 
uh, April of 2015, mm -hmm. I spent, uh, or was it two, 2014? Anyways, it doesn't matter. I spent two years inside. I got sentenced to almost six years. Right. I spent two years inside, and then uh, basically because of my background with football and fighting and university, they let me out on day parole, which right. almost never happened. So you got to cut in a third, basically. Yes, because so like the way the federal system works is that you're eligible for day parole at your one-third, um, one-half for full parole, and then three-quarters of your sentence, they have to let you out on your stat release right. to get you reintegrated into society, right? right? So you have to stay in a halfway house, blah, 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 yeah. do all this stuff. What did you think when they said six years? What was going through your head at that time? I knew it was coming, right? Like, it was a decision that I made to plead guilty. Like, they offered me a deal. They said, look, either you can fight everything mm -hmm. or you can plead guilty to everything. And I knew what I had done and what I hadn't done. Uh, I knew what I had done and what I hadn't done. And basically, the stuff that I had done, I was busted red-handed. Yeah. Stuff that I hadn't done, I had a chance, mm -hmm. but not a good enough chance to risk getting 15 years is what I was looking at if right. I fought it and lost. Yeah. So I did a, a risk-reward scenario in my head. I said, ah, it's going to cost me another 100 grand, which I'd already spent pretty close to that, mm -hmm. um, to fight all this stuff and a lot of the stuff I'm going to lose. Yeah. It's a business decision at that point, right? Yeah, and so they were like, okay, we're going to combine all your sentences, run it concurrently, and it was five years, eight months, and ten days. Yeah. And I was like, shit. <laughs> shit. Yeah. Like, and, and you thought you were probably going to serve most of that, if not all oh, of yeah, it? Oh, yeah, I thought yeah. I was doing all of it. I had no idea how and it worked. At this, at this point, too, were you still dealing with some addiction and, and some oh, yeah. substance stuff? Yeah. So that must just have made things even harder. Yeah, I went in, I was on a drug called Suboxone, and I didn't realize you could get high off of it. I thought it was just a drug that you take to avoid getting high, but you can get high off of it. Um, and so I was getting high every day. Not realizing <laughs> it. Not really realizing it. I was like, oh, I feel good after I take my meds. And then, like, you know, eventually clued in, and that created a whole bunch of other problems. Well, they eventually cut me off because I was just fucking... Right. I was recreationally using drugs again. Yeah. Inside. Yeah. On their dime. Right. And so they cut you off, and you had to basically detox on your own in there? Yeah, I just went through withdrawal, and it was like, there was a... Jail is not a fun place. No. Um, and so it created a whole bunch of issues. I wasn't sleeping. Like, it was just, it was crap, man. Like, I could sit here and tell you stories all day. Me passed out puking and crap and, yeah. you know, laying on a concrete floor with the light on 24 hours a day. No TV, no blanket, no pillow. Yeah. Laying on a concrete floor. Like, it's not fun. So would you say that was absolute rock bottom? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think, uh, you know, but I went through a lot of rock bottoms, man. Like, yeah. You know, the, the halfway house I was living at when I got released doubled as a homeless shelter. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's full of the worst kind of people you could ever imagine. Like, the island's a funny place because the island is, like, basically a big open custody prison in some ways. Like, obviously, it's not. It's a beautiful place to live. <laughs> but when you're on parole, right. it is. Yeah. Because it's got the highest police presence. The government's right there. It's this. It's the provincial capital. So... You know, you're fall I was followed everywhere. And the place that I was living was like, man, I'd find dead rats in my shoe. I'd find dead people in the bathroom. Jesus Christ. Overdose on fentanyl or whatever, right? So guys, purple, puke, shit everywhere. People probably don't make friends in there. You probably just- I try not to. Yeah, you probably just keep, keep your head down, do your thing. I put in my headphones and like, I stand out. So everyone's like, hey, hey, big guy, like wants to ask a million, because I'm doing stuff, <laughs> just right? Just off, yeah. And so I got to walk through 70 people. Mm -hmm sitting there looking to just latch on to anything that they can to try to get out of their miserable lives. Mm -hmm. And I'm like walking, taking the bus, doing construction, digging holes, whatever I got to do just yeah. so I can eat. I want to hear the uh, construction story. Your first day on the job. 
So, like, I've had, like, some part-time jobs in my life, and, like, but I've never really had to, like, work for a living. Mm -hmm. And so I show up at this job site, and I'm like, yeah, cool, construction. I got this guy, Joe's my boss. Yeah, you're on parole. You're getting a head start. You're doing this. I'm sure this guy's cool. Everybody's cool. It's going to be easy. You know, we're just going (laughs) to, and I'm like, he starts, like, running, and it's, like, 6 in the morning, I think I'm there. Just took the bus there sitting there with all these guys and they're kind of like looking at me like who is this guy I got a big beard I'm like 260 pounds and this boss is like telling me what to do he's like yeah you're gonna go up here and like I don't know he's like you don't have any tools I, like, I don't have any tools yeah he's like alright I'll get you a crowbar and so like I climb up the scaffolding and scaffolding is the word I hope to never see this scaffolding again in my life and like he's like yeah just rip all these boards out blah 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 it's all cedar it's the middle of the summer so I put my uh, crowbar there boom board falls down and this wasp nest lands right in front of me and I'm like fuck shit and they start swarming start saying they're stuck in my beard they're up my nose they're going in my head and so like the problem was there was another wasp nest on the other end of the scaffolding so I started panicking because mm-hmm. I don't know how to get off the scaffolding like, I've only been up it once yeah and time. you're six four six five, and that is not built for the people your height so I could have climbed down right where I was standing but I didn't realize that so I went through the same way that I got up there, which was walking past another wasp nest. Well, they're smelling all the pheromones. (laughs) So I got attacked by another wasp nest. So I'm crawling down, yelling at this residential building, like just losing my mind. First day on the job. Yeah, getting stung by bees. I throw my hard hat, these things are, I'm taking off my shirt, I'm freaking out. Yeah. Here's this 250 pound guy freaking out, ripping off his clothes, getting stung by bees. It's now 7.05 in the morning. Been on the job for like five minutes. Good start. Yeah, the boss is like, you need to go to the hospital. I was like, I'm not leaving. No. Not a chance. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, you got to go to the hospital. You got stung like 60 times. And I'm like, I don't care. So I basically felt like high off of venom the all day, which was not a fun high. It was like just nauseous. Yeah. And I was sweating like profusely, like just sweating all the chemicals out. Still went to the gym that night. (laughs) refused to get off my routine because I knew if I did that day then it would set the tone that I would just make an excuse every day to not go to that horrible job right and the job got better as I learned more skills and stuff it can't get worse yeah (laughs) no it it did it got better well I started to learn some skills and stuff too right that's incredible that you saw that you stuck it out right like how you do anything is how you do everything and I think it just set the tone um, and then you got back into boxing once you were out and you kind of were just doing it to keep fit at that time? Well, what happened was I was, um, so before all that happened, I actually moved to Vancouver Island to work in a logging company. Okay. That was my whole plan. My whole plan was to just disappear out into the logging camps. Yeah. I was totally ashamed. I didn't want to give people my like real a, name. Wolverine. <laughs> disappear into the forest. Well, yeah. And I had, yeah. I had the, 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 the resources to do that. I was working for a family out there. Uh, that's really big in the logging industry. We'd stay out on the water. There was just the three of us. We'd go up, we'd work, we'd come back. It was great. Mm-hmm. Well, he ended up like having some problems of his own and like there was a lot of problems with forest fires and stuff. So we ended up not getting the work and I ended up not being able to do that. Well, now I'm stuck in a city where I know no one. Mm-hmm. Again. Again, yeah. right? Starting over. I don't even want to give people my real name. Like I'm working out at a gym and everyone's looking at me and I'm getting paranoid. <laughs> 
So I'm hitting a bag one day, and this guy comes up. He's like, "Hey, are you a fighter?" I was like, "Kind of like look like me, had tattoos." I'm like, "Oh, here we go. Here's an undercover cop again." Yeah. Right for the third time this month, someone's trying to do a sting on me. Well, he wasn't. He ended up being a nice guy. I was like, "Ah, why don't you come down and train with me?" I ended up training at a place called Zuma. I had some experience. I knew Adam uh, and Sarah from before. We had fought on the same card, I think, like years ago. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being a really positive thing. You know, I ended up. Uh, it was funny. One of my main sparring partners ended up being a probation officer at the provincial level. Okay. That's good, right? You yeah. keep, he keeps a good eye on you, and everyone. Yeah. Well, I had no idea for three months. There you go. That's three, even better. Yeah. So three months later, I was like, "Hey, I was like," because someone's like, "Hey, do you know what he does for work?" I was like, "I have no idea." He's like, "Well, he's you know, maybe you should talk to him, right?" So I go talk to him. He's like, "Yeah, I know who you are." He's like, "I don't care. Do you care?" I was like, oh, "I don't care. If I, you know, we're just getting, getting the work, right?" Yeah. And so it ended up being a really good thing. You know, I trained at, a, at an MMA gym, and it got me to a certain point. I got six wins under him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I made a lot of good friends and made a lot of good connects and, you know, like always be grateful of that. And then it got kind of to a point uh, um, back in June where, you know, I needed to make some changes in my career. I, I reached a new level and I needed more attention, mm-hmm. right? And uh, uh, MMA is a very cool sport, very difficult sport. But the problem with training at an MMA gym when you're a boxer, boxing is so specific. Yeah. MMA is like you have to be pretty good at everything right right so you miss a lot of stuff that uh, you don't at a boxing gym boxing is so specific and like your coach has to be with you 24-7 and you know Adam had about 10 fighters he has probably one of the most successful gyms in Canada Mm -hmm. and he's constantly gone he has a family and so I was like look you know like maybe this time we part ways I'm trying to get more serious about this and right you know, so hopefully there's no hard feelings. I'm sure there probably is, but you know, that's life, right? You got to do what's best for you. Well, exactly, and I mean, people understand eventually too, right? Like, the, yeah. the truth always comes out, and they yeah. they get that you're just doing the best within your own world, mm-hmm. right? So then, when did you start competing like high level, and and you won? the WBU championship heavyweight championship back in February yeah yeah and you were still living at the halfway house at that point yeah so what happened was uh, I'm actually very lucky uh, to have friends in KO boxing Mm -hmm. right Uh, they're one of the premier promotional companies and like what people don't understand about boxing is if you don't have a promoter backing you you're gonna get abused Mm -hmm. you're gonna leave this sport with permanent damage Right, I'm very, very fortunate to have Melanie and uh, Milan looking out for me because this is a very dangerous sport, obviously. Mm-hmm. And what happened was, is I was not really like I was supposed to do that one local fight. I was just going to do a local fight for free. I didn't even care. I was like, I just want to fight someone. I'm right. Pissed. And uh, that fight ended up falling through. So I was like, ah, you know, like I was still embarrassed to call everybody. Like mm-hmm. nobody had my phone number. I wasn't on social media. Like I was very, very humiliated, and I was very embarrassed and even contact anyone so I called Milan I go hey Milan I'm back training again mm-hmm. Melanie you know maybe take me into consideration for the new year which would have been 2016 because I think it was still 2015 at that point yeah and uh, it was right before the December show and they're like they called me back like th- like three days later because they're like oh you know but it's tough to come out to Edmonton yeah <laughs> right it was not easy for me to come out here right and get clearances and well not even money just and, personally yeah this is where I got arrested this is where I ruined my life right? right this is where I terrorized a lot of people this is where my addiction was at its worst and it's not an easy city for me to come back into even today really okay and so um, I have a huge sense of guilt of how I let everybody down and so um, I went and called them and said hey keep me in consideration for the new year I should be ready mm-hmm. called me three days later and I was in shape because yeah. I'd already been in shape for this fight 
they're like, we have a fight for you in December, six weeks. I was like, I was like, well, I called my PO. I was like, can I go? And she's like, yeah, you can go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I talked to my coach. We looked at the fight and I, they're like, yeah, you can go. Uh, yeah, you can win this fight too. And I was like, all right, mm -hmm. well, I guess we're going back to Edmonton. <laughs> it's the things that are the hardest to do for us yeah. that I think are the things we need to do the most sometimes, 100%. right? You have to face that. So that was December of what year? Uh, 2015, I believe. Yeah. 2015, and yeah. then you just kind of got on a roll of fights and... Yeah, because I got, well, because KO does four shows a year. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would supplement some of those. Like I went and fought in Quebec in February of 2016. So the next year or two, or no, it was 2017. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was uh, the next year. I fought outside of KO, but usually I'll just be fighting for KO, right? They do four shows a year. Four or five shows for me is fine. I fought once in Victoria. So the past two and a half years, I've done almost 10 fights, I think, or mm -hmm. yeah, nine fights. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's more than enough for me, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, they just kind of kept rolling. Uh, you know, like from my football days, I have a, I have a way of, of maintaining my body. I know how to eat. I know how to like do proper physio, take care of myself to try to avoid, um, you know, serious injuries. Like everybody gets injured. It's a very difficult sport. I've had to deal with that. But uh, you know, like I just stay on track. I stay very disciplined. I don't drink, I don't do drugs. Like, you know. And what, what keeps that discipline for you? How do you not slide back into it? Is it just too much on the line or? I have reference points, yeah. right? So I think of those times of me sitting on the ground detoxing. I think about the times I've let everybody down. I think about my friends coming to visit me when I'm inside. I'm thinking about running out of money and not being able to use a phone. I'm thinking about having to cash in my pension to pay my lawyers. I'm thinking about being homeless, living in a homeless shelter. I'm thinking about finding dead people in the bathroom. I think about being arrested and sleeping in the loony bin. Like yeah. it's just, like I have endless amounts of reference points that I can go over that it's like, ah, oh, are you making the right decision here? Yeah. And I still struggle with it. Not so much the drugs. Yeah. The drugs to me is easy to avoid. Like I just have no, like I've developed myself mentally where I just don't need that crutch yeah. anymore. I just don't. And so people are like, well, what if you get hurt now? I said, well, that would be the last thing on my mind would be taking any sort of drugs. Yeah. But uh, you know, um, there are certain habits, there are certain mentalities that I still possess that that are dangerous in some ways, right? Like, it's, you know, like I'm in a very serious sport and I'm on edge lot like everything I do is very difficult so I have to like really maintain I have to understand that not everybody's like that yeah so you know I can't yell at people I can't be intimidating <laughs> right. I don't get in road rage incidents like if somebody cuts me off and they start giving me the finger and stuff I stare straight ahead serenity now yeah, no, 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 because you know like I know what I'm capable of and do you get that like because you're big and intimidating looking do you think people want to challenge you more than an average person uh, is it like they have something to prove sometimes yeah, yeah I haven't experienced that for years kind of well yeah right yeah. like I sit at home and watch movies mm -hmm. Right, so you know, like yeah, I do. I walk around downtown. I get a lot of attention. People stare, and you know, they they more so they just kind of want to engage. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily want to confront. Mm -hmm. I find anyway. Right, they want to talk a big game. Yeah, they just kind of want to talk to you and feel you out and see what you're all about. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I have a propensity to mess with people. <laughs> That's so good. I totally engage yeah, yeah. in whatever they're saying. Mm -hmm. And uh, try to mess with them a little bit. You gotta have fun in life, right? Hundred <laughs> percent, right? Messing with people is probably my favorite activity. Um, so you win, you win the WBU heavyweight championship in February, mm -hmm. um, and then you're still living in the halfway house at this point. Yeah. yeah. And then 
when did you move out of there? Like, was that? I was a few days later. Yeah. So what, like, what was going through your head at that point? Were you like, okay, I think I can like kind of put this stuff behind me, and I'm looking forward? Or do you still feel like you have a pretty big chip on your shoulder? No, I still have a huge chip on my shoulder because I still have to deal with this stuff every day. Like, I'm still on parole now. Mm -hmm. Like, I have to carry around paperwork with me. Mm -hmm. Um, How long does that last? uh, Until next year. Okay. So. I'm still very aware, like the police, if they pull me over for running a stop sign, they recognize my vehicle, they recognize me. I have to call a parole officer, I have to be very cautious. Because I can get sent back for something as simple as talking to somebody in a criminal organization. Right. And so uh, it's always, it's constant stress, you know, like even as something as simple as like, you know, like maybe arguing with somebody outside a restaurant, you're just having a dispute on the phone. Somebody could, you know, see me or know me. Call it in. Call and, it in. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's um, it's a very stressful situation. And then, you know, like I definitely limited myself of where I can go and what I can do. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like someone's like, hey, man, we want to fly you out to Vegas. You know, we want to pay you this to go train, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, ah, I'll never be allowed in your country yeah. <laughs> ever again, right? Yeah. So it's, and that's fine. Like, I, I don't feel bad because I did it to myself, mm-hmm. but it still makes me aware of my limitations, which is a difficult thing for me to like, you know, right. kind of come to terms with because I, I don't want to feel limited. Yeah. So you just focus on doing as much as you can within your yes. parameters, right? Yeah, I kind of obsess over <laughs> Um, and then I don't, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about it a little bit, but we don't have to spend a lot of time, but back in June, I think it was, and you fought your friend, Tim Hag. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone knows the story about that. He passed away a couple of days later. I mean, what kind of wrench did that throw into your psychological development? Um, I think, uh, I think it's still, I still carry it with me today. Like, uh, people close to me will be like, you know, I'm a little more irritable, or like a little bit more sensitive to certain things and like everybody thought I dealt with it so well but that was just because I've been through so much stuff in my life going back to when I was a kid and getting counseling and stuff like that kind of brought some of that to the surface so it just created a whole bunch of more issues but really it's not even about me you know it's about his family and like when I think about that kid growing up without a dad mm-hmm. you know like that affects me right and you know Ray Mancini called me I see these stories and I see these things happening and every once in a while, like I'll say it and like the reaction I get from someone, like, you know, when I was talking to someone, like one of my contenders, I was doing a one-on-one private, I said, look, this is serious business, bad things can happen and they kind of like look at me mm-hmm. because they know and I'm like, you know, like it's the most serious thing, right? Like you have a brand now for life, doesn't matter what anybody says, mm-hmm. that's what I'm associated with for life, like there's a certain group of people that have that and there's a certain group of people that don't and so you know it, it, it affects me but it affects me more thinking about how it affects these other people yeah of course as it should because for you to you know get down on yourself about yeah. how it affects you that's that'd be selfish right yeah. but um, you know it's not about what's happened necessarily it's about how you're moving forward and how you carry yourself after that right mm-hmm. um, well it's good that you've got the right mindset about that have you seen um, The Good Son? The, good, so. It's the Ray Mancini story. Oh yeah, yeah, how he yeah, killed yeah. Dooku Cam yeah. in the ring, and then his he met his son years later. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of an interesting parallel there. And yeah. it's, it's pretty amazing that he called you. What did he yeah. say to you? He just said it's not my fault, yeah. and he dealt with it kind of in a different way. Like it was a different scenario because they fought a very close fight right to the end. So the biggest thing that he had to come to grips with was that why it wasn't at him, mm-hmm. right? Because it was a very close fight. Yeah. 
14th round right yeah yeah and so he just kept wondering like why it wasn't him yeah and then he never really forgave himself he never really recovered from it right his boxing career suffered big time and yeah, it was pretty amazing that he called me. Like I couldn't believe it. That's wild. How did, how did he track down your number? I have no idea. <laughs> You're just in me. shock, right? Yeah, well, I was actually fishing, and he's yeah. like, "Hey, how's it going?" I'm like, "Good." Who's this? He's like, "It's Ray Mancini." I was like, "Like the Ray Mancini?" Yeah, I, was like, <laughs> I was like, "Really?" And I looked, and it said it was like an Atlanta phone number. I was like, "Wow!" Right on. And so he's just like, "Look, man, it's not your fault." Mm-hmm. You know, and he, he's a very Christian guy, and so he goes that route, and, uh, you know, he asks for forgiveness and all that stuff, and I don't go that route. Yeah. Not by any means. And uh, so, you know, that worked for him, and, uh, you know, he's come to grips with it that way, right? Mm-hmm. So. Well, you don't have the religious path, but I think you run a pretty similar path in terms of just, you know, talking about it, being open and vulnerable. Yeah. Like, you've got nothing to hide, which no. is pretty incredible. And I think that probably allows you to to live the best possible life now. Well, yeah, and people are like, "Oh, are you over?" And I'm like, "No, I'm not over it. Like, no, I'm I'm affected. You know, like, yeah, I keep it together because I have to. Mm-hmm. But it's like, yeah, I'm affected by it in a lot of ways, right? And I'm affected by everything that happened to me in a lot of ways. Like, every once in a while, I'll start telling stories. And people are like, "You got to stop." I'm like, what do you mean I got to stop? And they're like, "Man, I can't hear this. Like, it's disturbing to hear." Try living it. And that's what I say, right? And that's fine. Like, so I'm just, I'm just wary about like what I say and what I talk about because it's like, you know, it's not everybody, not everybody can deal with it. Yeah, right? I, I'm a firm believer in every, like, almost everything should be out on the table. Yeah, I think like our, our lives are just so much more enriched if we're just open and vulnerable and not lying. Like, when you lie, you you prevent the other person from seeing the world from your perspective. And so I also firmly believe that if things don't make sense in life, if you see something you're like, what, that doesn't make sense. You just don't understand the whole story. Well, just people are so sanitized these days, like especially like some of these younger generations. Because what people don't really understand is like I've taken, like I was in university, so I've been exposed to like, you know, a moderate amount of education, <laughs> not, you know, we went through uh, college. Like that's, yeah. Huge. And so like, I, I have a, a decent view of how the world works and what people don't really understand, like, especially like my parents' generation, they had a very easy, in some ways growing up, the economy was great. Basically it was end of the war time. You get a job, you get a house, yeah. you know, you move on. Well, so many kids these days, like they don't have those opportunities. It's not the same job market. It's not the same economy. So their parents are coddling them and they're sanitizing them. They're not seeing the real stuff, right? Yeah. So they don't understand like where their food comes from. They don't understand like all like what real work is. They don't understand what real loss is because everything's so sanitized. They're so sheltered, mm-hmm. and so that's you know like how how they grow up but I didn't grow up like that at all right yeah. so. I think we're paralyzed by opportunity now too right like yeah. you didn't have many options when you're a parent's age or their parents right now it's like you're told you can do everything mm-hmm. or anything but no one really shows you how or tells you how yeah, you're kind of yeah. left just like like stunned you're in headlights what do I do now yeah they think if they like learn essential oils or something and become like a millionaire it's like <laughs> doesn't it like it doesn't work like that, right? Like you're gonna have to grind, and like especially now you're gonna have to grind, kick, bite, you know, steal, cheat to like you know just kind of survive yeah. for a lot of people, right? Like especially, you know, unless you're gonna inherit a bunch of money or like your parents buy you a house or something. Like good luck. You grew up in Surrey, you get a, get a million bucks before you get a house. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, you have to come to terms with the fact that you probably won't live as affluently as your parents do. No, of course right? not. Yeah. Um, and that's a tough reality to face, right? Yeah. You're like, this is the best my life will be in terms of financial. Um, <laughs> but I want to ask you a couple more things here. Um, how was the first fight after the Tim Hag fight? Um, 
It wasn't too bad, just simply for the fact that I have really good support around me, right? Like, I was still kind of transitioning out of my old gym, Zuma, and, you know, people like Sarah Coffin, so they come to my house, they just show up, right? They're, I always had people around, I always had people calling, a lot of positive outreach. My coach, Rich, the stage was actually really good. And, uh, you know, he actually, he brings out the demons in me in the train, like we train very hard. Mm -hmm. And so he brought that out of me. He made sure I was there every day. Like I don't get any excuses. Like I got a tracker on my phone that tracks what I do. <laughs> and I send that to him. Really? Right? So yeah. it's like, you know, I always tell everybody I make a joke. I'm like, I gotta be monitored. Well, it's true. Mm -hmm. Right? Like he even texted me today. He's like, I haven't heard from you in a day. What's going on? Right. He's like, that's not a good sign from you. I was like, ah, you're here tomorrow. I was like, we don't have lots to talk about that, don't worry. Yeah, so this is your trainer at your gym where you're at now? Yeah, right. Rich. And he's here for the fight, boxing. right? Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, the stage boxing, he's, he's good. He trained uh, guys like Mark Wolno, and he won a Canadian title. And Shane Andreessen fought some, like, really tough guys, top guys, and Banner down in the States and stuff. So. Yeah. Okay, so last topic, talk about the fight upcoming on Friday. Oh, I can't wait for this fight. You know, it's, it's one of those things, like, most of my fights before, minus the last one, were really just me fighting with some boxing skill. This fight, I, I plan on showcasing my boxing skills. Okay. Right? And so that's an important thing for me because, you know, like, anybody can go out there and just fight and clobber guys. Like, yeah, I'm a big, strong guy. I'm going to hit you. I'm going to hurt you. Mm -hmm. But it's important for me to be real and to say that I'm a boxer. Yeah. Right? So I'm learning these skills. And I want to showcase them. Yeah. Plus, I think the older you get, the less you're able to rely on just pure physical talent, right? Yeah. You've got to have some some skills behind it. Definitely. So it's Friday, Shaw Conference Center. What time? Yeah. What time uh, is it? Seven o'clock. The doors open. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm available for tickets. If anybody wants to hit me up at Braidwood Boxing, or there you go. How do they reach you? Uh, they can give me a Braidwood Boxing uh, on Instagram. They can hit me up on Facebook. It's just Adam Braidwood. B R A I D W O O D. Yeah. Right. Perfect. Um, last thing I want to ask you to share with the audience, for people who don't have those reference points of rock bottom, yeah. you know, what do you recommend for people to deal with things? You know, even if they're not like, oh, I'm an alcoholic, but even if they've got that, that seed of a, a doubt in their mind, like maybe I'm not doing the right things, maybe I'm going down the wrong path. How do you, how do you encourage people to, to try and really think hard about getting um, your life together? Get out of your comfort zone. Um, I think too many people do just that they stay in their heads and they think too much about what they need to do instead of just doing something mm -hmm. right like if you're you know fighting battling with obesity or battling with some sort of like addiction or some sort of health issue then go do something that's uncomfortable right like it, go do something that is going to expose you to new people and good things and better things and and harder things and even if you fail and get hurt you know you're gonna have to overcome that adversity and then there's your reference point Right, so go and try and do new things. Like whether it's like you know, go, go try a baking class. Like go, like whatever you want to do. Yeah. Like the, like people always come in and they're like, oh, I want to do that. I'm like, go go do it. Do it. What's your What are you waiting for? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So perfect. Well, really appreciate it. Thanks so much no for problem. taking the time. Uh, best of luck on Friday. Right on. And uh, hopefully, I can make it. I plan to be there. Cool. Let me know. All right. Tickets. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening to what was admittedly a heavier episode, but I think there's lots of valuable stuff there to unpack. If you know anyone who you think could benefit from this episode, please share the podcast. Uh, friends, family, loved ones, enemies, dogs, cats, whoever. It's all good. See you next week.